Rising inflation, a cost of living crisis, striking public sector workers and grim predictions for the NHS this winter. Costs on the public purse are spiralling as the UK government's debt surpassed GDP for the first time in 62 years. Support for social security benefits and energy support schemes is pushing government borrowing still higher. These public finance figures cast doubt on the Chancellor's ability to unveil big pre-election tax cuts while meeting his fiscal rules. And what will this mean for any election? Is it true to say there is no money left? We've brought together the heads of three of the UK's leading think tanks to offer a deep dive on these issues. I'm Arnon Menon, Director of the UK in a Changing Europe. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the IFS. And I'm Hannah White, Director of the Institute for Government. Welcome to The Expert Factor. So has the government run out of money? This is Labour frontbencher Lucy Powell in July 2023. There just frankly is no money left. The, the cost of government borrowing as inflation and interest rates rise, that cost of government borrowing is going up and up and up all the time. We've had Covid Ukraine, the disastrous uh, mini budget of, of Liz Truss uh, last year. Paul, is there any money left? Well, it all depends what you mean by that. There are certainly big, big constraints on what government can spend at the moment. You've got a situation at the moment where we're spending more on debt interest than we have in many decades. We're actually raising more in tax than we have probably ever um, in the past. Uh, but we don't have a lot of money left to spend on everything else despite that high level of tax uh, income partly because of those high debt uh, payments, partly because we've got a aging population and more money needing to be spent on health and pensions, partly because the economy has been doing so badly. So if you keep with current tax and spending policies, then debt, which you've already said is at its highest level in 60 years or more, debt won't start to fall. Both Labour and the Conservative governments are uh, Labour Party and Conservative government are saying they want debt to fall in the medium term. So it would be genuinely quite hard to increase spending from current plans at the moment whilst keeping to those kinds of fiscal rules. And in the short run, quite difficult to do that uh, given the problems with inflation and putting more money into a, an inflationary environment is risky. But of course, governments have choices. They can raise taxes Taxes in the UK are high by UK historic standards, but not particularly high by, for example, Western European standards. And they'd have to keep to exactly the fiscal rules that they've got in the medium run. There's a little bit more they could spend. But yes, there are some really, really tough constraints on what governments can spend over the next few years. And it seems to me one of the other problems for both the main parties at the moment is that there's been a change in expectations of what government will do for the citizens. So primarily because of, uh, first because of COVID and the massive amounts of money, which of course added to the national debt spent on, on furlough and, and those sort of employment support schemes, and then followed rapidly by the energy crisis. And I thought it was really interesting how recently when uh, you know mortgage owners are now sort of feeling the pain, there was a call from some Conservative MPs, for, well, maybe we should go back to supporting people with mortgages. And we've also had proposals from the government to extend the support that the government will give to people for childcare. And the extent of what citizens now think, oh, the government might step in and help me with that, only seems to be getting bigger and bigger at a time when the money available to do it seems to be getting less and less. I mean, Paul, I think you've assumed slightly too much knowledge on my part, which is easy to do, because 
I know when I've run out of money because I go to the cash points and it says no. That doesn't work like that for governments. What does running out of money actually mean, if anything, in the context of a government? Well, the closest we've come to anything like that in recent years was last autumn when the government of the time under Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng said they were going to cut taxes by something like £45 billion. Pounds, mm-hmm. And there was an immediate effect on the cost of government borrowing. So uh, it was became overnight much more expensive for the government to borrow the money it needed to keep afloat, to keep um, uh, to, 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 to keep paying for public services and so on. So, so there, there comes a moment sometimes, very, very infrequently happily in UK history, uh, when you get that moment where the markets, the, the, the people who lend government money, either stop lending, that's not happened, or really want a lot more money, a lot more interest for, for what they're going to do. Um, but you know, we don't want to get into that position. And that's why Governments have, you know, for the last 25 years, governments have always run with a set of fiscal rules which try to constrain the amount that they're, uh, that they're going to borrow, tell everyone this is the most that we're going to do, and try and keep within those mm-hmm. rules. And for them, then the, the limit is created by those rules. But they're self-imposed rules. They they're not hard and fast. Time. They change them all the time. They break them quite frequently. And the truth is, um, you know, with that one exception a year ago, we have been able to borrow more. We have been able to you – know, debt has risen and risen and risen. Uh, but as the Office of Budget Responsibility has pointed out really quite recently, um, unless we do something pretty dramatic over the next few years, that debt's just going to keep on going up uh, because the amount we spend on pensions, health, social care and so on is going to continue rising and rising quite fast as the population ages and these things get more expensive. Um, and if that happens – there is only one long-run option, and that is to increase taxes, unless you're going to say, well, we're going to mean set the basic state pension, or we're not going to provide universal health care, or we're going to you know, abolish some part of the education system. We really have got to the point where uh, you've got these really, really big choices into the long run. Okay. Now, Hannah, you alluded to earlier the fact that people's expectations are quite high, expectations of government, while our expectations about what we get taxed are that taxes won't go up. And actually, the political parties play along with that. And the one thing that it seems to me that both big parties do is say, don't worry, we'll do it through efficiencies. So where are these efficiencies that will save us so much money, if anywhere? Well, that's a, it's always an interesting phrase that you hear the politicians reach for exactly as you say, that they think, well, you know, there must be some fats to cut somewhere. And I think even, you know, sort of new uh, administrations coming in, of which we've had a number in uh, even the last year, tend to think, well, maybe the last lot didn't try hard enough. But what we have seen since uh, 2010 and the sort of austerity period is, you know, real cutbacks uh, in lots of areas of public services. And there are some areas of the, of the state which have been protected from that. Some areas which are ring-fenced, so so those cuts haven't fallen for a long period. That was the case with development funding, although the government's now changed that and so on. But in the areas which are not ring-fenced, there have been really severe cuts and, and that's affected 
um, as we talked about on the last podcast, things like capital investment in public services and, and so on. So I think, as, as Paul's alluding to there, you know, there are always things you can stop doing, but that isn't really what politicians like to have to announce. They prefer to say there's somehow some magical fat that we're going to be able to find and, and cut. And when actually it's whole areas of state activity, really, that you're going to have to think about if you are going to make meaningful cuts in the cost of running the UK. But it's worth saying that there have been at times past periods when efficiencies were possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think anyone would um, really argue anymore that in 2010 there was scope for cuts. I mean, heads of more than one head of a lo- local government told me at the time that they were, quote, pissing money against the wall, unquote. Um, but we're not in that position anymore. The cuts have been really quite severe over that time. The problem is sometimes in aiming for efficiencies, uh, they're false economies. Again, we talked in the previous podcast about cuts to capital funding in the NHS or cuts to um, supposedly non-frontline services, which then make it much more difficult, much more expensive to uh, provide things later on. Of course, we, we, all, we, we all use the NHS, we've all used bits of public services, and we can see that there are efficiencies there that you could have, things that aren't working terribly well. Uh, but that's not an alternative. I mean, that you need to do that. But mm. the scale of what is possible, certainly within a reasonable time period, is not anything close to the scale of what's like to be needed in terms of money to keep the NHS going, for example. And it's worth saying, though, isn't it? I think our policymakers have faced a pretty much perfect storm in the sense that after a period of austerity, you then have COVID, which stretches public services that are already stretched almost to breaking point. And then all of a sudden, when we're borrowing more to fund what we're paying to deal with that, you have interest rates spiralling because of a war in Ukraine. Uh, it, you know, the circumstances are less than brilliant. So it's not, it's not necessarily this is down to our policymakers. It's just a bad set of contingent factors. Yeah, yeah. Less than brilliant is uh, is, is exactly how I would uh, how I would describe it. And, and you and you've, you've actually left out the the most less than brilliant part of what's happened over the last fifteen years. We've had virtually no economic growth, which has meant that there's been less in the way of money to go round in, in the first place. Now, some of that, some of this is the fault of policymakers. I mean, you know, we we haven't had great policy for economic growth. We haven't had a particularly rational way of allocating public spending that has been. Sure, we'll come on to this. We haven't had a particularly sensible way of designing the tax system. So there, there are all sorts of things that government and policymakers could do better. But yes, there's a lot of external things that have hit the UK and other countries in uh, in recent years, which make this difficult. Last point I'd make is, is it's quite important to get, get one's head around this. We did have a decade of austerity, but this has not been a parliament of austerity. This has been a parliament uh, of really quite big spending increases, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you compare just pre, pre-COVID to today, and most areas of public spending have, have risen really quite fast. So this is a quite different period to the period pre-2020. And that's been reflected if you look at the, the workforce of the, the state, if you look at the civil service, mm. the cuts which were made from 2010 down in, to 2016 during the period of, of austerity have been entirely reversed by re-recruitment of civil servants, which has had to be done because of, well, initially because of Brexit, that there was a lot of policy work and uh, implementation work that needed to be done, uh, as you very well know, Anand, in, in areas that were previously things done for us by the yeah. EU or the process of Brexit itself. And then, you know, a number of other factors. So that's been completely reversed now. 
then you have a set of politicians who think, well, you know, we got down, it was a cut of 91,000 civil servants between 2010 and 2016, we got down to that level, surely we can get back there. But the question is, then what are you not going to do? Because actually, we are doing different things now than we were in 2016. Mm. And it's a kind of ludicrous cycle with the civil service. I mean, this is not the first time there have been cuts and then numbers have gone up. And it it has all sorts of consequences, not least a lot of very cynical civil servants waiting for the next chance they get a nice big redundancy payment. And I don't mean to be unpleasant with that, but that is the reality. Actually, in in retrospect, to my list of non-brilliant things for the economy, I should have added Brexit, I suppose, <laughs> which has hardly made the context easier. Had you forgotten? Had you forgotten that? <laughs> I like to on occasion, you know, have those, those few moments without. So we, you mentioned tax. And I know for those of you who don't know, Paul's got a wonderful new book out called Follow the Money, which from which I learned more about the tax system in this country probably than I wanted to. Uh, you could never know more than you want. <laughs> How can we do tax better? Oh, well, now there's a question and a, and a topic for several more podcasts, I should, um, I should think. I mean, there's so many ways in which the tax system could be better at the moment. The first thing to lodge in people's minds is that about a third of all tax comes from just three taxes. We've got dozens and dozens of taxes, but three of them, income tax, national insurance and VAT, uh, account for about two-thirds. Did I say a third? You two-thirds. Two-thirds. <laughs> Sorry. About two-thirds of the total um, tax take. So they're, they're the really important ones. And there are big problems with all of them. I mean, VAT is kind of bizarre in that it's only levied on a, a, a fraction of what we actually spend, less than in almost any other country in Europe or the OECD. And you, know, you have these absurdities that you know, gingerbread men with chocolate eyes, no VAT, put another chocolate button on, you have VAT. If you want a pet, get a rabbit because there's no VAT on rabbits because they're edible. Um, I mean, these are the sorts of strange (laughs) rules in the VAT system, which creates an enormous amount of complexity and uh, actually doesn't help very much with uh, redistribution. Then you've got two taxes on income, national insurance and VAT, and an enormous amount of complexity around the two of them. Uh, We treat people who are self-employed completely different to people who are employed. So for obvious reasons, people try to make their work status fit the tax system. Mm. Taxation of housing is a disaster. Stamp duty is probably the worst tax that we have. And you know, if, if, if we are to have some pre-election tax cuts, please just abolish stamp duty. It's, it's the most damaging tax we have by a long distance. We don't tax inheritance properly. Uh, we've um, got absurdities in the corporate tax system, which essentially penalises you for uh, investing out of equity, but gives you a big subsidy if you're investing out of debt. And I could go on and on and on. I mean, there are so many things that need to be made better in the way the tax system works. Just from a personal perspective, I'm going to say council tax and add it to that list because that strikes me as an egregiously regressive bit of taxation. Part part of what we need to do to get the tax system for housing right. But the problem with council tax is that if you live in a cheap house in Hartlepool, you pay a far higher fraction of the value of that house in council tax than if you live in a mansion in Westminster. It's absurd. It's just as well we're levelling up. But uh, <laughs> but am I right, Hannah? I think I'm, of all the things you hear politicians talk about, and politicians talk about a whole load of things, I can't remember hearing people talking about a root and branch reform of our tax system. Well, I think um, the Treasury Select Committee might have just done something on it. You're absolutely right. It's not something that comes up. In fact, what we normally have, which is the remarkable thing in the run into an election, is politicians promising not to touch those three core taxes, mm. which yeah. you mentioned there, Paul, which then puts a massive straitjacket around what they can then do in terms of raising money with with those taxes. 
And the thing I was going to raise is the way in which we make these policies around tax, because as you say, it's not really often the subject of, of debate in that sense. Do we have a, a, a tax, tax system, plan. system which is fit for purpose and a tax strategy and so on? And and yet, tax as a policy, because we have a system, an annual system of budgets and so on, where tax policy is set, it is almost sort of constantly in motion. So every year, the Chancellor has to come up with things they're going to do to the tax system and, and you know, t- tinkering and the ways in which they're going to tell the country everything is getting better. Whereas in other policy areas, you change things when they really need changing and you do a pop, you know, you should, this is the ideal, obviously, yeah. you know, think about whether you're achieving your policy objectives and think in the big picture and the long term and, and go through a process and then you do a big reform and then you see how that works out and you evaluate it and so on. Tax is much more bits and pieces and tinkering and a lack of evaluation. Um, and, and so, and you, and rabbits out of the hat yeah. at, at a budget. So that's the incentive is to be able to suddenly announce something, which means you get many more changes. And this is something that the IFS and the IFG and Chartered Institute of Taxation did some work on a few years back and argued that we shouldn't have more than one fiscal event, one more budget in a year, precisely because of this incentive around changing things all the time. And of course, because of what's gone on in the recent years, we've had a lot more. <laughs> even than the, the two we were arguing against, I think, at the time of you know, announcements of changes to mostly fiscal events, but spending in, mm-hmm. in recent years. But it's sort of a perfect storm, really, in terms of the wrong incentives for politicians to come up with their the, the thoughts on tax. And absolutely no direction or strategy. I mean, it's just extraordinary. We've had essentially the same government or the same party in government for the last 13 years. So at the first several years, really increasing tax income tax allowances and the last few years really cutting them first few years really cutting corporation tax and the last couple of years really increasing it i mean there's no sense of direction here and households and particularly businesses have got not the slightest notion what's going to happen to taxes in the over the next period and if you can have bad tax systems and good tax systems but tax systems which are completely unpredictable are just in themselves bad for the economy I mean, things sometimes look so illogical to me that I think government runs its finances like I run mine, uh, and that's far from far from being a compliment. But I wonder, I mean, part of this is political, isn't it? Part of it is a lack of honesty in political debate. And at some point in a future podcast, it'd be good to talk about whether anything can be done about the lack of honesty about trade-offs, which is a theme in your book, which is a theme in all our work, I think, actually, the lack of honesty about trade-offs. But I wonder, for the purposes of now, how much of this might also be institutional. There has been a sort of glimmer of a debate about the Treasury. And is the Treasury part of the problem rather than part of the solution? You know, should we break up the Treasury? Should we do things differently? Is there any truth to this, do you think? I used to work there, Paul, so you can... (laughs) Well, I did used to work at the Treasury. And um, uh, I think it's strange to blame an institution in the sense that this is an institution which has followed very, very different policies under different chancellors. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the Treasury under Gordon Brown, the Treasury under George Osborne, and the Treasury under yeah. uh, Jeremy Hunt just do very, very different things because that's the political direction. But I do think there are institutional problems in some senses. I mean, one is just about the level of expertise and experience in the Treasury. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the average age there and the average is extremely young and the average experience in job is extremely short. Um, I think Churn there are, is very high. Exactly. Churn is very, very high. I think there are problems also sort of, and, and Hannah can probably say more about this structurally, and I think the Treasury is actually really quite good 
holding other bits of government to account and challenging it. Mm-hmm. But there's no one to challenge the Treasury. Yeah. Um, and I think that's where things get really problematic. And that's partly to do with the sort of budget process that Hannah was just talking about. It's um, you know, taken out of a hat and uh, it isn't really tested properly before it's announced. In a way, actually, quite a lot of other policy is one way or another tested. Treasury can decide to you know, introduce tax allowances or give bungs here or there when that wants to be the that's what the treasurer the chancellor wants to do you know it's much more difficult for other bits of government because they've got the treasury breathing down their neck and i suppose it's you know who regulates the regulator who yeah, looks after yeah. the who, who, who looks after the people who are supposed to be in control and uh, that lack of scrutiny that lack of challenge that lack of um, anyone being able to stop the chancellor doing exactly what they want to do is i think a problem Anna? Yeah, and I think I'd add to that sometimes a sense that the Treasury is not sufficiently outward looking in terms of the evidence it brings in and who mm-hmm. it's asking and whose sort of work it's, it's drawing on. They're it's, not alone they're, in that though, are they? they are. <laughs> <laughs> but very much sort of focused on the Treasury worldview. The pushback from the Treasury, of course, would be, you know, we're the only department that has to worry about raising the money to come back to tax. You know, the other departments just come with endless requests to spend money and there has to be somebody who can push back. But it's and, and it's something we've been thinking about recently at the IFG, whether there is this sort of healthy dynamic at the centre of government, because mm. we do have this system, which is different to many other countries, where you have this duality between the prime minister and the chancellor. And the prime minister might well have sort of objectives they want to achieve. But then you've got this very strong chancellor figure who can sort of at the end of the day that there's that tension between can they get the chancellor to commit the money or not. And other government systems, you have much more system of the prime minister at the top and the right. finance minister is one of a series of, of the next rank of ministers. And I think one of the things we've been reflecting on is how well the centre of our government works. And that is this sort of triangle between number 10, cabinet office and the treasury. And whether you we have enough of a strategic centre. So whether these questions about how we raise money, how we spend money, which are very strongly controlled by by the Treasury, are factored in effectively at the centre to make these trade-offs yeah. across everything the government is trying to achieve, uh, or whether there's too much of a disconnect there and it's too much of a sort of antagonistic question. So we've been trying to think about how that works and how that might work differently. So watch this space for some thoughts from the IFG on that. Interesting. I mean, one of, one of the fascinating things about the last sort of seven, eight years has been, in a sense, the history has been the history of the fall and rise again of the Treasury, hasn't it? Because immediately post-2016, you went through a period where actually, you know, especially looking back to the days when Gordon Brown, master of all, he surveyed from number 11, the Treasury was suddenly being ignored by everyone and immediately after the Brexit referendum. I mean, that, that reverted to type, but it was interesting. But the, the second part of the institutional issue, I suppose, isn't about Whitehall, but it's about centralisation. Uh, that is to say whether actually our system is over-centralized. I think I know the answer because all our various organizations work on this. But what are the potential problems in economic terms of this level of centralization that we see in this country? And what are the alternatives? I'll start with you, Paul. Well, there's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot in that. I mean, what one is that, of course, this means that everything gets allocated from Whitehall down to local hospitals or local government or, or what have you. And we've recently published something which just shows that works really badly at the moment. The amount that goes to your local hospital or your local police force or your local council bears increasingly little resemblance to what you need. And our conclusion was the local government finance system is effectively broken. Mm. Um, So that's part one of it. And then the second part, which is what is the control, whether it's local authorities or regional areas, have over their own economic performance. And I guess I'm 
increasingly of the view, although I can't prove it, that the centralisation of economic control of tax and spending in the UK is damaging to regional economic growth. And certainly we are more centralised than other European countries. And you can see there's a correlation between that and, and poor, yeah. poor economic performance in our regions. And we shouldn't forget just how poor England outside of London and the southeast is. Many of our regions are among the poorest in Europe. Scotland is relatively well off. Wales and Northern Ireland are really very poor indeed. So it's worth holding all that in mind. And then, of course, the third bit of the sort of centralisation is Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland do, at least Northern Ireland at times, do have significant control over their public finances. So it's, it's, it's England, really, where we're thinking of a, a very centralised uh, centralized state, which, as I say, I can't prove, but I increasingly believe is damaging to our economic growth. Anna? Yeah, and we, we have been doing some, some work on this, you know, following the fact that the government has had this big focus on levelling up to say, well, mm. you know, at what level should you try to pursue different policies? What is the sort of spatial level at which different things make sense? And the, the problem that you have if you're in a local government or a combined authority is if you've got a central government department saying, well, you know, we think we want to spend some money on town centres. You can bid into this pot at the centre. Yeah. Um, then there are these numerous pots that people have to bid into. That creates an overhead in terms of the admin of applying for these different funds. They're relatively small amounts of money. They might not be over a very long time period. But you don't know if you can plan if you're going to get those things or not. Yeah. So you can't really have a sort of long-term plan, which is why I think, and I'm interested in Paul's view, that the idea that these two combined authorities, Manchester and West Midlands, might get more of a, a chunk of money from the Treasury next time around so they can do that planning and, and think across a wider spectrum of their responsibilities and think about a plan. That, that seems to me to be a good thing, but I'd be interested in your there view, is, Paul. There is a danger, isn't there? I mean, I just say this from reference to my own part of the world where I talk to people that, you know, those who have get more. That is to say, if you've got the resources, if you've got the economists, if you've got the public policy specialists, you put in better bids, you get the money, and it becomes sort of self-reinforcing. And rather than levelling up, you're sort of increasing the divide. But Paul, sorry, that question was aimed at you, not me. Yeah, well, your, your, your description of sort of, you know, bidding pots of money and not knowing where you're going to end up sounds a bit like running a think tank. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yes, it's uh, – it, I mean, I mean there, there, there's a whole series of issues. I mean, part of the issue is that there isn't enough money – part of the topic of this podcast, to go around so that you're helping everyone yeah. the same. Should we? And part of the reason I think we don't have a coherent sort of system of devolved government funding is we can never agree whether, you know, actually we should be focusing on West Mid Midlands and, and Manchester and actually other parts of the country will just leave for now, or whether we should actually be focusing on Blackpool and tendering and other bits yeah. of the sort of coastal areas which are you know, smaller but even poorer. None of that is... It's consistent. Mm. Um, I think it is plausible to answer Hannah's question that if you if you really do take significant areas like the Manchester area and the West Midlands area and over a period of time give them confidence over the fact that they will have control over significant budgets, well, of course, they could mess it up horribly. But actually, I think there is an opportunity there for something better to happen. And that's one of the reasons why Whitehall is so reluctant to let go because you could mess it up horribly and in our centralised political system it's not obvious that the Mayor of the West Midlands or the Mayor of Manchester will get blamed it might well be that that, that, that Whitehall gets blamed so you need a cultural change as yeah. well as the change to yeah. the um, financial settlements. I mean I can't help but think that it would be helpful if our system of local and regional government didn't look like it had been 
designed by a drunk on the back of an envelope because, you know, it is such a mess and it's so inconsistent and some bits can do this, other bits can't. But I think on the, the politics point is a really, really interesting one, isn't it? And it's really interesting for this whole discussion. It almost brings us back to what we've talked about before on this podcast, which is short-termism, blame-shifting, things like that. You're absolutely right, I think, under our system – politicians need to show they've done something to win elections. And as long as that's the case, it's very hard to find any incentive to give powers away to someone else who can take credit for them. And at the same time, you know, all these things we've been talking about, the lack of money, the need for growth, to address them, you need something that is medium, if not long term, you need to have plans, you need to have strategies, you need to focus on something and stick with it, because chopping and changing. Uh, and a lot doesn't... of those, a lot of those are difficult as well. I mean, and a lot of them have trade offs. So yeah, let's think. So we, we, we've talked about a lot about spending and, uh, and tax. What are the other things that we know, actually, we know would be good for growth? Well, one is significantly liberalising the planning system. Yep. Well, that's absolutely what we should do. But where that involves people having houses built in their back gardens or, yeah. or, or roads built outside their houses, they don't like it. Mm-hmm. And governments are very swift to stop doing that kind of thing. Uh, similarly, we know that building more houses, particularly in London and the southeast mm-hmm. and Cambridge and Oxford, would be good for growth. But local people hate it. Uh, I'm going to say something I, I, which may be controversial. We kind of know that actually being in the single market and the customs union would be good for growth, but we've made a political decision not Mm-hmm. to do that we know that investment in infrastructure will be good for growth so there are trade-offs in all of those things and there are reasons that we don't and one of the sort of dirty secrets in Whitehall is actually they kind of know how we could be better off but they're too scared to do it because they're scared of the electorate to some extent and then there are complicated things it's like how we run our competition regime how mm-hmm. we how we run our economic regulators which have been neglected and we've yeah. seen that for a long time which again haven't had that long-term focus and there are things that just i find it hard to explain in any of those terms like our neglect of significant parts of the education system actually where i think again sort of unfashionable things like further education exactly policymakers find it hard we have short-termism there as we've described before but actually at a high level it's not that hard to set out what would be you know, a 15-year growth strategy it's much harder then to get the specifics of what that would look like. And then what we find it almost impossible to do is A, legislate for it, and then B, stick to it. I think it's really interesting listening to you. You know, my background, as you know, is in the sort of democratic parliamentary space. And I'm just thinking as you talk how much of those factors that you describe comes down to our political system. It comes down to a constituency-based, first-past-the-post political system where you have two main political parties and we tend to switch between political parties over a period of time. So you have quite a sort of incentive to have policy shifts between the two main parties. You also have this really strong constituency voice from backbenchers who say, you mustn't build that thing in in my backyard. I won't get re-elected if you pursue that planning reform and, and so on. And, you know, green belt and all these sorts of contentious issues. It's really interesting how actually the democratic system is partly to blame for some of this. And if you had a different system, you know, you'd have different problems. You don't mean a non-democratic system. I don't mean a non-democratic <laughs> system. But, you know, if you had, uh, you know, if we more frequently had coalition governments, for example, and they, you know, maybe the, the nature of our politics is changing a bit so that even with a first-past-the-post system, that might be more likely. 
But if you had parties having to make trade-offs between themselves when they were coming into government to form a coalition, for example, you might have a system in which you didn't have such a sort of stark change from one mm. policy or, or the sense that we know that policy change is needed. Mm. But if we're the ones to put it forward, we're the ones who will get blamed by the voters. So we'll be out of power. We won't be able to do all these other good things we want to do. So let's just leave it in the too difficult path for now. And it's part of the thing that frustrates me about the economic debate. I mean, we, we focus on today's GDP figures. What happened over the last quarter? What is the government going to do to make things better over the next year? Well, the truth is, actually, governments can do very, very little about economic growth over the next six months, year, two or three years, mm. certainly in a sustainable way. They're really powerful when it comes to what growth will look like in 10 years' time. But, of course, that's completely outside of the political cycle. So why haven't we focused on making our competition and our regulatory regimes better well, who's going to vote for that? Who's going to get the benefit of doing that? It, you get the benefit so so far down the road in, in such an opaque way that it just doesn't provide quite the right incentives. Now, I don't know what the answer to that is, but um, you know, at, at some sense, I think this is hopeful. It's not that there's nothing we can do. Um, so all we have to do is find out how to do it. And actually... I'm finished reading your book feeling strangely optimistic. Oh, strangely optimistic for me, at least, in the sense that <laughs> I was surprised by the fact that on most of these sort of big public policy issues that you touch on, actually the solutions are relatively clear. So it's not like there's a great deal of doubt about the fact that we need to do something about non-university tertiary education, for instance. The question, as we've both just been discussing, is how you get politicians to do it. But I think, you know, it is something to have a sense of what the answers are before we start. And Paul, we've all just been at the Labour and Conservative Party conferences. We had a, a big speech from Rachel Reeves, a rather shorter one by Jeremy Hunt. What did you make of, of what we heard? Well, uh, interestingly, I thought the big economic pronouncements from the Conservative conference really came from Rishi Sunak, not from Jeremy Hunt. And I think that's quite interesting. In a way, I, I thought Rishi Sunak hit the right target, but arguably in the wrong field. So <laughs> by that, I mean, as a sort of bit of an economics -y wonk, I've got a lot of sympathy with saying, look, you know, there's, we've sunk an enormous amount of money into HS2. We know that there's almost certainly more benefit or likely to be more benefit in spending 40 billion quid putting rail links and so on across the north. That's going to be good for the economy. So let's do that instead. And I had quite a lot of sympathy for his um, announcements on replacing A-levels, rather less sympathy for his uh, wanting to roll vocational qualifications into the same thing. But uh, these were completely inconsistent with policy of the, over the last 13 years, and actually part of a bigger economic problem, which is that we've seen no consistency in economic policy. We've had changing and chopping bits off HS2 here and there, changes to tax policy, changes to education policy, changes to industrial policy every few months, it seems. And that's economically damaging. We didn't, in my sense, hear a great deal from Jeremy Hunt beyond what I was pleased to hear, uh, his repeated insistence that he's not going to be giving pre-election tax cuts, the public finances really don't bear that, and nor do the risks around inflation. I think we got a steady-as-she-goes message from, uh, from Mr. Hunt. What did we get from Labour? Well, from Rachel Reeves, I think we got a statement, really, which was not too different from Jeremy Hunt's in terms of her view of the importance of keeping the public finances on a steady path. 
little bits of money, tiny bits of money for the health service and other things. I think one of the things that I take from that and from many other things is that we really do need to begin to get our heads around scale to talk about a billion pounds for the NHS and a couple of million additional appointments is is so small as to be barely noticeable. And yet that got lots of headlines. I mean, the, the, the NHS has 100 million outpatient appointments a year and 25 million GP appointments a month. So adding a couple of million to that's not going to make much difference and nor is a billion pounds on a 180 billion pound budget. But again, I thought the biggest economic announcement from the Labour conference was really what we heard mostly from Keir Starmer about his commitment to building more houses and in particular to changing planning policy. Now, if that happens, that would, in my view, be an unequivocally good thing for economic growth. The issue, of course, is whether in reality, they will have the political strength to push through those sorts of reforms in ways which will annoy a lot of voters in particular places. Because we have seen current government and its predecessors continually fail to make these sorts of reforms in the face of local opposition. Is that because the voters who are going to be annoyed by those planning changes maybe are in areas that don't necessarily vote Labour in the first place? That might be what's uh, what's going on. We certainly need plenty of houses around London and in the South East and uh, in the home counties uh, and on the Greenbelt around London. But that's not the only place that they're required. I think the real challenge very often with these sorts of policies is that it's not obvious who benefits. I mean, people don't know that they are the ones who might buy these new houses and they don't can't see what impact those new houses are having on the price of the house that they're looking to buy. But the people who are affected, well, they can see it in the field over the road or they can see that it's affecting the villages that they drive through. So the, 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 the political problem is that the, the beneficiaries are dispersed and don't really say thank you because they don't know what it is that's impacted their living standards or their house price. Whereas those who lose out, it's very, very obvious who they are and they they know it and they make a fuss. The concentrated losers. I mean, I thought what was interesting from both sides was the focus on the long term. I mean, which seems inevitable, right, in terms of economics. None of what's being proposed is clear from what you've been saying, Paul, is going to have a a quick benefit in terms of of economic growth. And so both parties are trying to hit home to the voters that actually they don't want to be judged quickly on this stuff. Well, I think so, though it was interesting to hear and slightly worrying, uh, because I think Keir Starmer at one point in an interview said that he thought that a Labour government would get growth going within months. And I think that is not the case or not likely to be the case. The governments are very powerful, in my view, in terms of what happens to growth. But to make a difference on a sustainable basis really does require sustained policy over a long period of time, which has a a big effect eventually. But you're right that actually getting change which people will notice quickly is difficult under current economic and fiscal circumstances. The next couple of years are going to continue to look difficult. The impact of rising interest rates is still gradually 
going through the economy as more and more people flow off their fixed rate mortgages onto higher mortgages. And actually, as more people who have assets notice that the value of those assets, whether that be their house or their defined contribution pension, that's not doing so well either. So things aren't going to look very good from that point of view. And in terms of disposable income, as taxes rise, uh, continue to rise really quite significantly over the next few years, and the economy is fairly much in the doldrums. We're not going to see much in the way of household income growth. And the chancellor, whoever they are, isn't going to have a lot of money to give away over the next couple of years, given that the national debt is pretty much stuck at well over 90% of national income. Tempting as it is to disagree with Paul on economics, I think I won't do that this time around, though one day I'll pluck up the courage and just say a couple of things to build on what he said. Firstly, he's absolutely right. That point about diffuse costs and concentrated benefits is key to understanding what's going on here. And I think the broader sort of context to that for me is the British people don't vote for growth. They don't vote for long-term investment. They don't vote for long-term skills policy. They don't really vote for infrastructure. And so it's a weird moment in our history because both political parties prioritise growth above all else, but they need to dress it up in a way that makes it electorally sellable. And that causes problems of its own. I mean, the final thing I would say about both party conferences is I came away thinking, hmm, we've not really taken full stock of the economic hole we're in. I mean, we know in terms of debt repayments, in terms of the lack of growth, that even without doing very much at all, we're facing a fiscal squeeze. We know also that both parties are committed to lowering debt as a proportion of GDP. So even standing still, as it were, we're going to face fiscal pressures. And on top of that, we've got public services that are buckling. We've got all the transport problems that we know about. And I think that whatever happens, whoever comes in is going to have to raise our taxes. And at the moment, there's a bit of a lack of honesty about that. But for all you youngsters listening out there, let me just say the clear lesson of today's episode is if you're going to do a social science, do political science, because that's where all the action is. Thank you. (laughs)